Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Hi, this is Anna. I want to let you know that this episode is about pregnancy loss and includes a detailed description of a stillbirth. I feel like the world ended that day and no one else sees it. It's like the apocalypse is happening and everyone else is just going about their business, but they don't see how how much we've lost something or, or they don't feel my pain about it. This is Death, Sex, and Money. All your life has led us to this moment. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Did you have sex with her? And need to talk about more. Yes, sirree, there's some things money can't buy. I'm Anna Sale. Pregnancy loss happens a lot. It's most common early in pregnancy. Of women who know they're pregnant, 10 to 15 percent will have a miscarriage before 20 weeks. After that, pregnancy loss is called a stillbirth. One in 100 pregnancies ends that way. That's about 24,000 a year in the U.S. We hear about pregnancy loss often in our inbox, about the grief, the lack of mourning rituals, and the secrecy. We just don't discuss it. This is a listener named Crystal in California. She emailed us three months after her second child died at full term. I still, months later, feel as if I'm trapped in a nightmare looking out at the world with no more sense of self. Crystal wrote that she stayed away from social media and all its baby pictures. Going back to work sooner than she expected was really hard, too. And I found myself almost unable to listen to the show because you were on maternity leave and I wasn't. But she wanted to talk about her experience, even though it's so recent, because so many other families go through this. I know I had very little experience with it before my loss, and I had to learn how common it really is. We set up a time to talk during Crystal's lunch break. She's busy, back at work full-time, and she has a three-year-old son at home. I feel like every time I figure out one stage, uh, he moves on to the next, and then I have to kind of reassess, <laughs> you know, my parenting style. My older daughter is also three years old, so, like, are, yes. are you in the stage where he's becoming more able to push your buttons? Yes, definitely. <laughs> the the terrible twos, terrible threes kind of... Uh, attributes. <laughs> Until recently, Crystal was a single mom. Her older son's father left them when her son was about a year old. 
the day he left was totally out of the blue. There was no argument going on. Um, he just, uh, he kissed me. He kissed our son on the head. And then he walked out the door. You know, he was just going to work. And uh, after that, we never saw him again and never heard from him again. And it turns out it's, it was a pattern. He'd done that before kind of in his life. How did you deal with the, the grief about that, that separation and breakup at the time? Well, I was kind of going through the stages of, um, well, shock and sadness and definitely anger more than anything. But mostly I was just in survival mode. I, I didn't really let myself um, deal too much with the, the emotions of it because I had to um, now find out financially how I was going to take care of my child, have a home. You know, he we kind of did things 50-50 financially. Um, so I didn't know. Uh, it was more, uh, what am I going to do next? I needed a, a plan to protect myself and my child, and that was all I was really concerned about. Crystal didn't want to date again, not right away. But a few months after her son's father left, she was out at a bar with her family, and she met a friend of her brother-in-law's named Jonathan, they hit it off and started seeing each other. He um, was charming right off the bat and likable and uh, handsome. And, you know, there was definitely a, an attraction there. When did you find out you were pregnant again? I believe about four months into our relationship. Uh -huh. um, it was definitely unexpected. And I didn't even plan to, you know, have more children at that point. Um, you know, I didn't even know if we were going to be together uh, as a couple, so it was definitely uh, shocking. Yeah. And when you had that conversation, when you said, I am pregnant, what was it like? Well, first he was kind of in disbelief, um, and then he was super excited, and he was 100% wanting this baby. And I said, okay, I thought you may have <laughs> you know, said, well, what are our options here or something like that? And he goes, no, absolutely not. I really, he goes, it's your body and I, I respect your decision, but I want this. And did you have misgivings? Did you think, uh, I don't know if this is the right time. Maybe I'm not sure if I want to keep this pregnancy. Uh, I would say a, a, most of me wanted it too, but the adult and the responsible person in me said, we have not been together this long. I just went through this big traumatic thing. Um, I feel like it's probably a little crazy to rush into this, but I don't know, everything just seemed to, uh, the carpet just seemed to roll out mm. behind us as we went along and everything seemed to be just right. It just felt right. Crystal and her son moved in with Jonathan a month or two after she found out she was expecting. And her pregnancy progressed normally. But then, around 39 weeks, she started to worry that something might be off. I was about to go on my leave from work, and I definitely felt less movement. Um, and I had called the advice nurse uh, through my hospital, and, and she had said, oh, you know, the baby is getting much bigger, there's a lot less space, and I was starting to get much more swollen. Um, and I just figured uh, it, was, it was normal. And um, so I, I had an inkling, but definitely nothing that worried me that much. Tell me what happened after you went into labor. I told my husband, you know, I think I'm, I'm having some contractions. And he said, well, you know, we need to probably get ready to go and call someone to pick up our son. And, um, you know, uh, it's, it's time. 
And what happened when you got to the hospital? They brought me into an admitting room, and I, I all of a sudden kind of got this panicked feeling um, that I wanted them to check the baby's heart. And I thought the baby hadn't been moving that much, and I was, it, it was just in the back of my mind. And we got to our actual delivery room, and the doctor came in and introduced herself, the, the nursing team, and they start moving the monitor around, and there was nothing. It was probably just seconds. I mean, it, it felt like hours long. And the doctor said, I'm so sorry. There's there's no heartbeat. We've lost your baby. I just sat there in shock, and my husband um, would not accept it. He kept asking her, there's got to be some, some mistake. She said, no, I'm sorry. You know, and then um, the nurse kind of just put her hands over my hands and Uh, sat with me for a minute, and the doctor kind of had to launch into the plan for what was next. Because you're still having contractions while all this is happening. Right. So I was still in pain, and I was still knowing that my body was ready to deliver this baby. And um, I think my next um, thoughts were were like, you know, I'm going to have to deliver a, a dead child. I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know if I want to see this. I don't know. You know, I just kind of, it started to really um, sink in more that, like, the horror of what was happening and um, just the sadness of of that. Do you have memories of the childbirth? I do remember delivering, um, I remember just, like, maybe two pushes and it was done. And my husband saw the whole thing and I know if it had been a living child, that would have been one of the best, happiest moments of his life to see his child born and to help cut the cord and to do those ceremonial things. But in that moment, I was just like, I wish he had never seen that. And will he ever unsee this? Um, and they immediately noticed that there was the cord wrapped around uh, our baby's leg and I believe around his body. And then there was a knot with the cord around his neck. They, they put the baby down on, on the table just like they would, you know, a living child um, and um, wrapped him up. And they, they said, you know, do you want to see your baby or hold your baby? And I, I just immediately said no. I said no. And my husband said, take him away, which thinking about that now mm-hmm. um, seems so cruel or so cold or, um, I don't know, the wrong thing to do. But at the time, we were just both like, we don't want to see this. This is horrifying. This is sad. And... My mother-in-law was there at that point, too. Um, and she immediately went to him and held him, and she tried to bring him over to me, and I, I was still just so in shock that this was my child, you know, dead in front of me, um, that I, I didn't want to deal with it. I did not want to see him. I was still just so in shock. And this wonderful nurse that was with us through the whole thing, um, she told me, she said, People who do not get to hold their baby and see their baby after this tragedy occurs regret it. You will want to hold your baby as long as you can and see your baby as long as you can. About how much time passed before you you felt ready to to hold him? I I held him for a little while at first when the nurses were suggesting it because I felt like I should follow their instruction. I felt like they knew more about this than I did, but I couldn't quite connect, and I didn't want to keep holding on to him. Um, and 
it, yeah, it was probably about an hour or so after I initially held him that I kind of did again and wanted to see him. And uh, it, it was just uh, so hard. Um, and we did end up looking at all his nooks and crannies and seeing that, you know, his his ears were like his dad's and little things um, we got to kind of take in. Uh, and now looking back, I wish I could just, I wish I just had almost a video of every little part of him. You know, I wish I would have um, kind of spent more time. And at the time I was, it was just too hard to absorb it all. And um, it's just such a funny thing to think about not wanting to be with my child now, uh, whether he was living or not, you know. Um, but th- at the time it seemed uh, hard, harder to to do. I've thought a lot about that day, but not a lot about, you know, holding him. Did you decide to name your son? Yes. um, He was Everett William. So William after his great-grandfather, and Everett was a name that my husband chose. Coming up, Crystal and Jonathan try to move forward without their newborn. I had this new anxiety I've never had before. Um, And even, like, social anxiety. Um, I didn't want to go into the outside world. I didn't want that to uh, be—I didn't want to step forward without my living child coming with me. You know, I didn't want to do that because then it made it feel uh, cemented in reality that this really did happen. do get so many emails from you about pregnancy loss. So I want to let you know about some other podcasts that are doing a really good job talking about it. There's a new show called Unspoken Stories from the March of Dimes about miscarriage, infant loss, and early parenthood. It's hosted by actor Tatiana Ali, and it's really good. The podcast Sisters in Loss features stories about Black women who have higher rates of miscarriage and stillbirth than white women in the U.S., And the CBC show Out in the Open did a really wonderful episode about grieving pregnancy loss and about supporting other people who are. There are links to all of those episodes on our website at deathsexmoney.org. And since this is clearly a conversation that you want more of, we also thought it'd be good to make a place where you can offer your own suggestions for the books, articles, songs, other podcasts that have helped you when you felt alone with your grief around pregnancy loss. So we've made a Google spreadsheet where you can add your own suggestions and talk to one another. There's a link to that on our website, too, at deathsexmoney.org. On the next episode, Raphael Sadiq, the musician, producer, and songwriter, talks to me about loss, love, and his sprawling studio in L.A. where he makes music. I had a chance to have Stevie Wonder in my studio a few times, and Stevie says to me, He said, how does it feel to have your own beautiful studio away from all that bullshit out there? That's the first time I heard Stevie Wonder curse. Like, whoa. (laughs) I'm like, did he just curse? I heard Stevie curse. Yeah, but... but, How does it feel? Great. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, 
propels us forward and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Crystal's doctor confirmed that Everett died of an umbilical cord accident and that she couldn't have done anything to prevent his death. The way the doctor put it was it was just that pregnancy, that genetic makeup, that baby. It, could, it would probably never, ever happen again to you. It, you're just one of those unlucky people that it happened to. How long were you in the hospital after you gave birth? Uh, I was in the hospital for two more days after in the mother and baby unit where you normally would bond with your baby. They put a... Um, like a a sad crying face on our door so that anybody that came in would know that we had had a loss and there was not a a baby in the room with us. Um, And they would play this music every time a baby was born, you know, a little chime. And every time that chime would play, we're just like, you know, it just was just a reminder of what had just happened to us. It was was really rough. And when Jonathan went to check on things at home— he realized their garage was also filled with reminders of what had happened. We just had all of this stuff ready to be put together, used at different, you know, there's so many different things that babies use at different ages. You know, one month might be different than three months, six months. Um, So we had all this stuff lined up, and he said, you know, if you want me to go in and take everything away, I will. And I said, no, absolutely not. I don't even, I did not want him to touch any of it. I was immediately gave me the sense of fear to get rid of our son's things. Um, and I I still couldn't explain quite why. I just think it. my initial reaction was absolutely not. And he kind of said, well, I don't really want to look at it. And I said, well, then put a sheet or something over it because it's not leaving our house. It's not going. Um, and it's still there to this day. <laughs> so uh, maybe that's another step that I'm just not ready to take. And the thing about pregnancy is after a certain point it's it's very public like it's not just people yes. who are family members or close friends who know all your coworkers know anyone in your neighborhood who you see mm-hmm. regularly knows they know that you know when a baby is coming yes how did you deal with that what did you say to people who you who weren't close what what would you say when they asked um well most of my family members um, went to the rest of the family to tell them in person. Um, and then I had a family member call my boss at work and tell him what happened. And I, at first I said, I want everyone to know what happened so that I don't get questioned about it later. So um, I had them set up a memo and send that out. And I wrote kind of generally what I wanted to say um, uh, which kind of, I guess, is the same thing as doing like a, like an obituary. It was kind of like that, you know, we're, we're saddened to announce the yeah. loss of our son. And um, I kind of just generally gave an ex- a reason why it happened because, again, I didn't really want people to um, ask, but I didn't really put a post on Facebook or anything like that. Has there been an interaction that you had with someone where you came away thinking, ugh, they really said the wrong thing? Yes. Um, 
some people have just asked, hey, how's the baby? Um, which, you know, it, it was hard for me. to. I, I think I worry more about how to answer people when they say that and how they're—I feel like I end up comforting other people because they feel so bad bringing it up that it's not— um, even about my loss anymore. It's about their feeling bad that they even brought it up, which is so silly. I've had people say things like, well, it's okay, you can just have another one. And I've had people say things um, like, oh, you look so great. Um, are you intentionally trying to lose weight after the baby? And it's almost laughable, some of the stuff that that people say. Um, sometimes I'm so understanding, and other times I just want to punch a wall. In, in the first weeks after after you delivered Everett, when you were alone, kind of with your body, and your body is recovering from the experience of, of pregnancy and, and childbirth, um, did you have any, like, strong feelings towards your body when you were looking, looking down at yourself and thinking about what your body had just been through? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I, it wasn't like I really cared that much about looking good again or getting my body back. It was more like trying to look at a point where people would stop asking me, um, you know, oh, did you just have a baby? Oh, are you pregnant? I just, I didn't want to look pregnant. And I would just get so mad that I went through nine months of carrying this child and and through the labor and through all of this um, hard work. And, you know, you, I decided to pump my milk um, and save it. And I would just think, you know, I was supposed to be breastfeeding. I was supposed to be bonding with my child, but I was going away to be alone to do this thing that I didn't even really know why I was doing it. I just felt like, oh, it was just like a cosmic joke. Like the whole thing just seemed uh, ridiculous. I have to say, Crystal, I think pumping is my least favorite part <laughs> of pregnancy, childbirth, parenting. And um, yes. I, it's when I think of pumping, I think of it as like it's this thing that causes you to have to stop what you're doing. You've got to go to a place that's somewhat private and you're going to spend mm -hmm. 20 to 30 minutes collecting your milk. Uh, and, and I wonder, did, is there something about did having that ritual in the first months after you lost your baby, like was that something that was kind of a a welcome ritual that you you had your body would tell you when it was time yes. to pause and go away and do this thing. Yes, definitely. Um, I think towards towards the end, it became a little unhealthier. I think I needed to be around people, and it started to make me um, kind of grieve harder. Um, but at first, it definitely was something I could say, um, you know. I need to be alone. I can be away from the anxiety of dealing with all this stuff in my normal life. And I can just take a break and pause. And it was a, a break and a a step forward that I, I knew I had to do, just like um, feeding the dog or, or feeding my other son and, you know, um, just like getting up for them every day. There was something there uh, to do. Are you still pumping? No. Um, I stopped probably about two months in. I still have a freezer full of milk and of colostrum. And, you do. Uh, I've thought about donating it so many times, and it's just like his stuff. I cannot part with it. I can't get rid of it. I feel like it's a physical reminder of 
me and him together that I can't get in any other way. And every time I go into that freezer, I always see it. And some days it's very hard, and other days I'm it makes me happy and feel connected. Um, but cannot get rid of it yet. So I, I want to acknowledge that we're talking, and and you know that I'm just back from my maternity leave. Yes. Um, our pregnancies overlapped in time. Uh, I yes. had a baby who was born healthy. You had a baby who was born not alive. Um, mm-hmm. What what's it like to to talk with other parents, um, other mothers in particular? Uh, who who didn't have this terrible outcome i i think it's a mixture of um it, it's kind of bittersweet because of course i'm happy for you having your healthy baby of i had um three girlfriends that were all pregnant at the same time that i was this time and we were looking forward to play dates and all these things and um and when we have been around them um it's been definitely difficult. Um, we had conversations at first when it, when we first told people and when people were first checking on us. But since then, we've kind of just, um, people stop asking about it or talking about our loss. And when they do talk about their babies, it's not really to us. It might be around us, but I sense the they tread lightly on that topic. Um, it just feels like this awkward space of... Let's find anything else to to bring up. How have you grieved in your household when you have a when you have another kid at home? You've got a a son. He's almost three now. Like, did you feel like you could be open about what happened, or did you want to protect him from it? I feel like there's been times when I haven't been as present with my living son because I'm mourning my lost son. I feel like I zone out or become kind of like zombie mom. I'm just on autopilot, and um, sometimes I do cry. Sometimes we do yell and scream, and um, sometimes, uh, you know, we just have bad days, and, and my son will come up, and he's just starting to get to the point where he knows that someone's sad and how to kind of empathize and comfort that person. And so he'll say, Mommy, are you sad? And he'll come and pat me on my back. And if he sees me crying, and, and I'll say, Yes, I'm sad. And he'll ask why, and I'll I'll tell him. But it's, it, you know, I feel like with— What will you say? When you say you tell him, I'll, I'll tell him. You know, mommy's sad because I I miss your brother um, that we lost, or or something like that. I kind of try to keep it simple. Um, you know, it seems kind of like an advanced thing for a kid to get at that age. But I figure the more we just say it and it's a normal thing, the less it'll be um, so traumatic for him in some way. You know, I uh, like same thing with um, my son's biological father. We've talked about how to tell him about that one day. And I said, you know, if it's not this hidden skeleton in the closet and it's just something he can come to us about and ask questions about, it won't be as hard for him to process. Um, and it, it's also healthy for me, I think, to be able to talk about my lost son with my living son. Yeah. I wonder— when you think about what you went through after your first son's birth and um, the 
the surprise and the hurt and the pain of realizing you were going to have to do it alone um, and the grief that came from that. Uh, does it feel like you've been able to think back on that time and how you got through it as you grieve your son Everett, or does it feel like a very different loss? It feels like a very <clears throat> different loss. Um, I was hurt that I was left, and I definitely have maybe a kind of PTSD, um, but I got back on my feet. I still had my son, and I felt like um, I came back better than ever. I felt like I everything happens for a reason. I felt like... Um, like it was there to teach me a lesson. Um, it felt like somebody treated me badly and made a poor decision and was out of my life, and that was for the better. Um, it didn't feel as much like a like a loss. Um, this feels much deeper. I mean, it's it's a person that I you know it's a child. It's I grew him in my body, and I feel um, more like. Uh, more depths of depression, more, more waves of grief crashing on me than I did with with that first traumatic experience. Um, maybe I will learn things, and maybe I will go through this process um, growing in certain ways, but it will never not be sad or not be terrible or not, you know, it, it'll always be, um, it, it made a new person out of me. That's a woman named Crystal in California. She and Jonathan got married the month after Everett's death. And Crystal said that since we talked, she's donated her breast milk to a soon-to-be mom in her town who isn't able to nurse herself. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Sandra Ellen, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. Thanks to the Buffalo Bill Center of the West in Cody, Wyoming, for use of their studio. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And in addition to the wrong things people have said to Crystal, she also told me about the ways people have been helpful throughout her loss particularly the nurses at the hospital. Most of the time, it wasn't that they said the right thing. They just were there. They just sat there and said, you know, we're here. We're just here. That was all they needed to do was they just kind of coexisted with us through it. There's really no right thing to say. It's just doing the action of being there. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.